Amen. Friends, join me in prayer uh, one more time as we now look to God's word and the truth contained in it. And we think about how that applies to, yes, our marriages, but to all of our relationships and to our lives as believers. Let's ask God now for his help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as has been confessed and acknowledged already today as sinners and as people who are in desperate need of your grace and the work of your spirit by your word in our lives. Father, we know that in our weakness and in our sin and our frailty, we are unable to do anything good for ourselves, eternally speaking, or spiritually speaking, without you showing up and doing that. And so, Father, we pray to you as our compassionate God, that you would be compassionate now and that you would move by your spirit in power. Father, we pray that you would take the truth of your word and drive it deep into our hearts and our minds and change us the ways that we think and therefore the ways that we live. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your plan of redemption that you have accomplished in Jesus Christ. And in him, all of these things are possible and we pray for them. In his name, amen. Amen. Well, the, the kind of message that I'm preaching here this morning, that being a topical message about marriage, relationships, that kind of stuff, is not normally what we do at Covenant Baptist Church. Those who have been here for the first two sermons in this series have heard me say this already, but some of you have not been here for those. Typically, what we're doing during this time on a Sunday morning is we are preaching passages of Scripture. We look at chunks of the Bible and aim to unpack those, what they mean ultimately. And then what do they mean for us? What do they tell us about God, his plan of redemption through Jesus and what he's accomplished on our behalf? And therefore, what that means for living. Normally, we would be making our way sequentially through a book of the Bible. But from time to time, about once a year, we do one of these topical sermon series. And we trust the Lord with these. Uh, we as elders take very seriously the preaching calendar here. And it seems that uh, even some of the topical series that we've done, as stressful as they are for me, have been good uh, in the life of the congregation. And we trust that that is true for this one. We're praying that anyway. As I've mentioned before as well, I don't intend for this to be a typical kind of sermon series on marriage. Typically what you get on marriage in a church uh, that's an evangelical church would be very much focused on maybe particular passages of the Bible that speak directly to marriage. We might be thinking about things that are very, very specific to the marriage relationship. There will be a little bit of that in terms of specific thinking about the marriage relationship, obviously, in these sermons. But my main objective in this series is to preach high-level gospel realities, Bible realities that frankly affect every area of your life and mine. Certainly they affect every relationship that you have. They come to bear on all of our relationships. Certainly that's true of the very unique relationship called marriage. So in other words, the vast majority of this content, you're sitting here this morning and you're not married. The vast majority of this content will be applicable to you in addition to being applicable to the people in the room who are married. So listen that way. I'm going to give the two disclaimers very briefly that I've given each week so far because I just want you to hear them and have them in your minds. Disclaimer number one about the sermon today and all of these. I have not arrived in my marriage. I have not arrived in my marriage at a place certainly of perfection or even, I would say, just having a very strong like, mastery of the principles and the truths that I am heralding to you. So I am very much in the fight with you. My marriage, like your marriage, or my relationships, like your relationships, imperfect. My marriage is imperfect, my relationships are imperfect, and I, like you, am striving by God's grace to apply the truth of the gospel to my marriage. If I could only preach things that I had a good handle on, I would not have a lot to say. This would be a very pathetic sermon series. And just remember that, as is true every week, I preach better sermons than I can live. And I pray that I'm preaching better sermons than you can live as well. 
But by God's grace, by His Spirit, we see change happen. Disclaimer number two. These subjects that we're covering are vast. They're huge. So there's all kinds of stuff that could be said each week or in the sermon series as a whole that I'm not even going to be able to touch on. There's a lot of really good stuff that I would want to say even and won't have time for that. And we trust God with that reality. Just a couple of words of, of pastoral instruction. One is very surface level. If you have missed the first two sermons in this series, you can find those on our website, covbap.org. You also can subscribe to our sermon podcast and listen to those that way. That might help you uh, just to have some backfill in light of what we're going to be considering today. But my other word of pastoral instruction is more serious, though maybe punchy. Listen for yourself when it comes to um, any message, but certainly a message like this. Listen for yourself. In other words, we don't need to be throwing bows at our spouse throughout the sermon or at other people sitting next to us. That's our tendency. You realize that we're all self-righteous. So what we tend to do when we hear messages like this is we are very, very aware of how this is nailing it to my husband or my wife. And frankly, friends, that posture of being very aware of how this is really convicting and sticking it to my spouse rather than first being aware of how it's sticking it to me is a lot of our problem. It's the root of a lot of our problem in marriage. So as I've said before, I have hopes for this sermon series that we would be confronted with things from God's word. Gospel realities that would recalibrate, hence the name of the series, recalibrate the way we think and recalibrate the way we approach our marriages and, frankly, all of our relationships. And so today, friends, we're going to be considering three essential components of grace-driven marriage. Three essential components of grace-driven marriage, and they are in the sermon title. So if you have the sermon title in front of you, you basically have my outline. Essential component of a grace-driven marriage, number one, it would be confession. Confession. So just as a note before we even dive into this topic more in depth, maybe two things actually. Confessing hidden sins, so what I mean by that is confessing things that you have not confessed ever, like that you're hiding and harboring, is in view. That's in view here. But what we are mostly dealing with when we're talking about confession today are the sins that have been clearly and visibly, obviously committed by you against your spouse. So it's like everybody knows what's up. Everybody knows the deal. It's happened out in front of everyone. And now what do we do with that? Second note is last week, uh, unintentionally, I had chosen uh, to preach a sermon on Psalm 32 as a one-off on Labor Day weekend. And it kind of fits really nicely with the topic and the subject matter. Uh, Blessed are the forgiven. So I would encourage all of you, if you missed that sermon last Sunday, go back and listen to that one too for more expansive unpacking of just the principles of confessing sin and forgiveness and all the rest. But I have four sub-points for us for the copious note-takers in the room, people who like the handles to grab onto. I'm here for you today. So I have four sub-points under point number one, and we'll call them... Letters A, B, C, and D. So letter A under point number one of confession is this. Confession is a matter of the heart. Confession is a matter of the heart. And it includes the following things. Confession includes seeing. What I mean by seeing is it involves identifying your sin and being convicted over it. Confession certainly involves those things. If you don't see your sin and you are not convicted over it, meaning convicted that it's wrong, convicted that it's real, convicted that it's significant, then there is no possibility for confession. Secondly, confession would include grieving. And by grieving, I mean remorse over your sin, over my sin. If there is no remorse, and I'm not saying that we feel this the way that we should, or as much as we should all the time. Certainly we don't. It's part of the deceitfulness and the hardness of sin, right? But if there is no remorse, 
over sin committed, there can be no confession, biblically speaking. Confession would also include what we might call owning our sin. So you have seeing, grieving over it, and owning your sin, humbly taking responsibility for the wrong, the objective wrong that you have committed. So in this owning your sin, taking responsibility for your sin, you're not making an excuse. We're all really good at that. We have a thousand reasons for why we did that sinful thing. In owning our sin humbly, we're not shifting the blame to whether that's our spouse or to our circumstances. We're genuine and we're sincere in owning our sin. And we're clear that it's about our sin. Our sin is the issue, not the sin of anyone else. So what I'm saying is if you're going to humbly own your sin, if you're going to take responsibility really for your sin, it's not the kind of confession that we all do where you're just worked up in the moment and you're like, man, I'm sorry. Right? Where deep down you're being defensive. Right? Deep down, frankly, you're convinced that the sin of your spouse is the real problem in the situation. Whether that's something that prompted your reaction or whether that's his or her reaction to what you're saying. In the moment, you're just like throwing your hands up in frustration and defensiveness. I'm sorry. What do you want from me? That's not confession. It's a humble, sincere ownership of the real wrong that we have done. Confession, finally, would also include communicating. So this is all under letter A, right? Confession is a matter of the heart. It includes seeing. It includes grieving. It includes owning. It includes communicating. That just means verbally acknowledging your sin and asking for forgiveness. We should make a practice of that. To not only say, I'm sorry, and then just assume that like, the asking for forgiveness is there, but to say that. Forgive me. And then we'll be talking about forgiveness more in just a moment. Letter B, under point one. This goes very much um, kind of on the, the coattails of our sermon from last week. Letter B. It is good to confess sin. It is good to confess sin. For you personally, it's good. So regardless of whether you're married or regardless of any of the relationships that you have, for you personally to confess your sin is good. There's a number of reasons. I talked about a number of those last week. But reason number one, perhaps, is forgiveness. Why confess sin? So that you might be forgiven. This is certain with God, forgiveness, that is. When we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is certain forgiveness is certain with God because Christ has paid for every failing. We really are in Christ counted righteous, really. And friends, we never move beyond those wonderful truths. The fact that Jesus shields us from the wrath of God and the truth that we are dressed really in his righteousness by faith. So we live in that reality every moment of our lives. So confession of sin, even to another human being, is good for us. Certainly, in confessing to another human being, we are confessing wrong done even before God that we might be forgiven. And friends, even at an earthly level, human to human level, if there is any possibility of forgiveness with your spouse, if there is ever going to be the possibility of reconciliation with your spouse, Confession is essential. But it's good for you personally also to confess your sin because in confessing your sin, you can actually find freedom. You can find freedom. We are set free, as we considered last week, from guilt and shame and condemnation that we all, let's be real, carry around with us all the time. We are set Free when we bring our sin into the light. There is great liberation in confessing sin. 
And all of this, friends, as a result of forgiveness and freedom and reconciliation with God and perhaps even reconciliation with our husband or our wife, our spouse, all of that brings joy for us personally. There is joy in confessing sin. There is no possibility of joy without confessing sin. You're robbing yourself of joy that you might know by harboring sin, by not confessing it. But in your marriage, it's good to confess sin. Let's just talk about in your marriage. Just two things that it will do for your marriage. If you're confessing sin regularly, like we're talking about seeing it and owning it, right? And grieving over it and communicating wrong done and asking for forgiveness. Number one, in your marriage, it will build trust. It will build trust. And secondly, it will foster intimacy. It will foster intimacy if you are regularly, you and your spouse, confessing sin to one another. Let's move on now to letter C under point one of confession. Letter C is sort of the flip side of letter B. If letter B was it's good to confess sin. Letter C is that it is devastating not to confess sin. It is devastating not to confess sin. Again, thinking after some of our thoughts last week, for us personally, when we don't confess sin, rather than being set free from guilt and shame and condemnation, we continue to bear those burdens 24-7. We carry them around with us all the time, and they weigh heavily on us. Guilt, shame, condemnation, fear of condemnation even. There is a, a heaviness and a burden that it's almost hard to describe when we are not confessing sin. To use what David's language, the hand of God, he even says, is heavy upon us, right? The Spirit of God in His children works to convict us of sin. And so it feels like this weight is just crushing me under the load. But then there's also, as David describes so powerfully in Psalm 32, there is a wasting away from the inside out. That happens in our lives when we don't confess sin. It eats away at us. When there is sin in your life that you are very well aware of that you are committing. And you're not confessing it. It will eat you alive. This nonsense that sounds like very spiritual but it's frankly stupid. When people say, well it's because of some unknown sin in your life that you're suffering. Ridiculous. It's, per, it's precisely the opposite. When you know that there's sin and you're not confessing it and you're harboring that, that's when we experience anguish of the soul. It is devastating for us personally when we don't confess sin. But in our marriage, if we thought about how confessing sin builds trust, if you want to erode it, if you want to destroy trust, don't confess sin. Also in our marriages, if Confessing sin fosters intimacy. Not confessing sin erodes it, destroys it. Trust and intimacy are not possible in an environment where sin is not being confessed. Letter D in the point one is a question. So in light of all of this, confession is a matter of the heart, okay. It's good to confess it. It's devastating not to. Question, why don't we confess our sin in marriage? Why don't we confess our sin in marriage? And I'm going to just offer a few possibilities here. This is not an exhaustive list. But maybe some of these will hit home for you. One reason that we don't confess sin, I think I just went unplugged. I'm going to turn this on. I don't know how well that's going to work because I move a lot. Um, I'm going to try to project. So the first reason that I'm going to offer as to why we don't confess sin in marriage is because of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. So as I've already alluded to a couple of times, many of us carry guilt and shame around with us all the time. And what is going on internally with us is that we doubt God's promises. We doubt that we really are forgiven in Christ. We doubt that what God says 
about there now being no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus, we doubt that that's really true. And so, we end up doubting our identity in Christ. And because of all of that doubting and the wrestling to believe those promises and the struggle even to believe those promises, confession is terrifying for us. Another reason that we don't confess sin in marriage is because of pride. I'm just putting this down. I don't think it's doing anything. Sorry. Pride. Pride is the root of defensiveness. I trust you know that. We always want to be able to justify ourselves as fallen human beings. We never want to admit that we're in the wrong. And so, because of all those realities, the defensiveness and wanting to justify ourselves and not wanting to admit that we're wrong, confession is hard. Another reason that we don't confess sin in marriage is because of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. This is where we are keenly aware of our spouse's sin. And the thing that's on our mind most, the thing that's in the front of our view is the sin of my spouse, not my own. And so I'm bothered, frankly, that they are not confessing their sin more than they are. I am worked up over the fact that my spouse is not asking me for forgiveness. Because my goodness, let's think about all the things that my spouse has done to make this marriage hard. And so I'm bothered by the fact that my spouse is not more aware of his or her own sin all the while I'm blind to my own. And my posture, our posture too often can be something like this. You know what? If there's going to be any confession of sin in this marriage, there's going to be any ownership of sin in this marriage, it should be him. It should be her, not me. That's how we think. Another reason why we don't confess sin in marriage is because of what I may call a desire to keep the moral high ground. A desire to keep the moral high ground. So this is often inextricably linked with self-righteousness. That's true. But deep down in our hearts, we want to keep the high ground. We want to keep leverage of some kind. That we are the ones doing better than our spouses in the marriage. We are not in the wrong as much perhaps, as our spouse is in the marriage. We clearly are giving more to the marriage. We clearly are sacrificing more to the marriage. And so we desire to keep that high ground. So confession is scary. I might jeopardize that. I might pull the curtain back and reveal too much. A final reason, just the few that I'm suggesting this morning, that we don't confess sin more than we do in our marriage marriages is because we fear that we will not be forgiven by our spouse. We fear that we will not be forgiven by our spouse. And frankly, that's very possible with respect to your, your husband or your wife. You can't control him or her. So you might not be forgiven. God, however, this is where we have to live as unto God first in everything. God, however, is not like that. As we've already considered, God is always faithful and always righteous, just to forgive sin because of Jesus Christ. So when we confess sin to Him, we can take heart and know that we know that we know that we are forgiven. And it is precisely God's faithfulness in all of this That is our hope and our confidence and the ground of our confessing our sin to our husband or our wife. So if you have humbly and genuinely confessed your sin to your spouse and you have asked for forgiveness clearly, at that point, you have essentially done what you can do. At that point, it is between your spouse and the Lord. And there is comfort in that. Does it make it easier in the moment? doesn't take the pain away, but there's comfort there. 
There's comfort because God sees. Because God knows the truth. And you can trust Him. Friends, a regular pattern of confessing sin is an essential component of grace-driven marriage. Which brings us to point two, or essential component number two of grace-driven marriage or grace-driven relationships. No shock to anyone in the room. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open them up to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21. Matthew 18 and verse 21. I think we're going to try to get these verses on the screen. Ron, do you mind bringing me yours? Friends, I really apologize about the audio. I personally am of the mindset that when things like this happen, it's better to just acknowledge the reality and let the air out of the room. So things like this happen. Thanks, man. I would rather not have to yell at you. This is taking long enough. No one will have an excuse for not having a Bible open. Okay. Is that better? Can people hear me better? I don't even know. It's on. There it is. Boom. There it is. Uh, Welcome to CBC. Here we go. All right. So Matthew chapter 18, may God give us grace now to dive back in. This is a parable that was referenced earlier in the service. It is provocative and it will lay us all bare. Put your eyes on Matthew 18 and verse 21. I'm going to read the parable for us and just comment as we go. Then Peter came up and said to him, him being Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, like an infinite, like perfect number amount. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That would be like billions of dollars in our day. And since he could not pay, like obviously, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which would be like a few thousand dollars. By comparison. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Boom. Like mic drop, right? So I don't even know that that needs a lot of unpacking from me. What's clear in that parable is how much we have been forgiven by God like that first servant. A debt that is unfathomably large that is impossible for us to pay. No way could we repay it. Ever. But we've been forgiven that debt. But then, to our shame, When it comes to us then extending forgiveness to someone who, by comparison, owes us pennies. We demand every last sentiment. We withhold forgiveness. Jesus nails us in that passage. One of the reasons that we do that, one of the reasons that we withhold forgiveness, friends, 
this is important, is that we bring the law into our marriages, into our relationships, and put it in a place where only the gospel should be. I'm going to say that again. One of the reasons, I would argue maybe the main one, that we withhold forgiveness in our marriages and in our relationships is because we bring the law into our marriage and put it in a place where only the gospel should be, where only grace should be. So what that means, friends, is that in our marriages, and I, again, when I say marriage, you can just hear relationships applicable across the board. In our marriages and in our relationships, we live in a constant cycle of law, transgression, judgment. Law, transgression, judgment. Law, transgression, judgment. It's on loop in every one of our relationships, in every one of our marriages. Our posture looks something like this. Okay, here it is. Here it is. Just to be clear. Here's the standard, right? You need to meet that. And if you don't meet that, when you break the law, now you face judgment from me. That's the problem. From me, you face judgment. It's like, God help you should you break the law in this marriage. I've referenced intimacy and trust already. But friends, brothers, sisters, you want to talk about eroding intimacy? You talk about eroding trust in a marriage? This cycle of law, transgression, judgment on repeat will flat out destroy both in your marriage. It will destroy trust and it will destroy intimacy. It is flat out impossible to feel connected or to feel safe with someone who is always your judge. Say that again. It is impossible to feel safe and feel connected to someone who is always your judge. So let me be clear for just a moment about God's law. This is kind of my disclaimer within point two. I don't want to be misunderstood at all. You need God's law in your marriage. You need God's law in your marriage and in every relationship you have. What I am saying is not contradicting that one bit. I'm going to unpack that for a moment. Having a grace-driven marriage does not mean lawlessness. Just like the Christian life, which by the way is grace-driven, does not mean lawlessness. We thought about that a lot together in the last year. God's law is holy, it is good, and it is wise. And you need it in your marriage. You need it in your marriage for at least two reasons. They're big. Reason number one why you need God's law in your marriage is that you need it to be your perfect guide for living. You need God's law to be your perfect guide for living. You and I, we need to know what is pleasing to God. It's revealed in the law. We need to know what is good for us. That is also revealed in God's law. Because let's be honest. In and of ourselves, we are fools. Yes, we're regenerate. Many in the room were born again by God's grace, by His Spirit. And our hearts have been changed and are changing. And we still can be quite foolish because of indwelling sin. We can be quite foolish because of Satan. And just even the power of the flesh. The pull of the world. The pull even of the evil one. We need God's law to guide us. The second reason that we need God's law in our marriage is to expose sin. To expose sin. To function as that great mirror that we stand in front of and we say, oh, that's not good. God's law shows us what's wrong with our behavior. But then even more importantly, at a deeper level, God's law shows us what is wrong in our hearts. And we desperately need that. So God's law is awesome in those two ways in your marriage. To guide you and to expose your sin. But the law cannot be the tone set of your marriage. The law cannot be what creates and drives the culture of your marriage and your relationships. And the reason for that 
is because God's law, as good, holy, and wise as it is, is given by God in His Word in the context of an even greater covenant. God's law is given in the context of this great covenant of redemption that God has made with His people. God is the one who guaranteed that covenant of redemption and He is the one who has accomplished it. God's covenant of redemption, of course, is the covenant that He made after Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against Him in the Garden of Eden. The first covenant that God made with Adam and Eve was a covenant of works. Cultivate the earth, fill it, subdue it. You can eat anything, don't eat that. And Adam and Eve transgressed that. Broke that covenant of works. And then in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God promises that one would come who would reverse the effects of that first covenant being broken. He promised one who would come and redeem his people. And from Genesis 3.15, the third chapter of the Bible, to the end of this very long book, God is unveiling and revealing His covenant and plan of redemption. And His law is given in context of that plan. In the context, I should say, of that great plan. So God then determined that He was going to save a people for himself, that would know him and enjoy him forever. He would be their God. They would be his. They would live forever in righteousness, unperishable. And he would accomplish that ultimately through his son, who would take on flesh, which he did 2,000 years ago. He would be born of a woman, conceived of the Holy Spirit, but born of a woman, truly God and truly man. He would be born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. That's us. He would fulfill all righteousness by living a perfect life that no one other than Him has lived. And that life could be counted to sinners by faith because He was a man who could live a perfect life for men. And when we trust Him, we get that righteousness counted to us. We didn't accomplish it. He did. But it's mine and it's yours by faith. But then He came not only to fulfill all righteousness, He came to pay the debt. That debt that that you can't pay, that debt that I could never pay, Jesus came to pay it for everyone who would ever trust in Him. He paid it in full. He died the penalty that the law required. Not for His own sins, He didn't have any, but for the sins of all of His people. And that transaction, it's, it's over. And figuratively speaking, Christ has the receipt. He's seated in heaven. It's done. There's nothing left to be paid. There's no righteousness left to accomplish. All that's left is to trust Christ. And then, yes, God is awesome and good, and He works in our lives by His Spirit, and He begins to change us. We don't look like we used to look when we come to know Christ. God's grace, friends, in the gospel is the way of dealing with the real wrong that happens all the time in this fallen world. God's grace in the gospel is God's way of dealing with real wrong that happens all the time in this fallen world. Jesus came because God does not overlook wrong. Jesus made perfect atonement and fulfilled all righteousness. For the people of God in their place to be received by faith. That's the gospel. This is our gospel. Amen somebody. So if that's true. That that message of what God has accomplished through Christ. If that's our gospel. Then we must. Capital M-U-S-T. Must take that into our marriages. We must take that into every relationship we have. The gospel must be the tone setter. It must drive the culture of our marriages. And so friends, with respect to the gospel and forgiving other people, consider this. Maybe especially with respect to the gospel and forgiving your husband or your wife. To the degree that we forget the 
massive ways we have been forgiven by God in Christ, the easier it is for us to not forgive. To the degree that we forget the massive ways we have been forgiven by God in Christ, the easier it is for us to not forgive. To the degree that we forget our desperate and daily need for God's grace, the easier it is for us to not give grace. No one gives grace better than a person who is utterly convinced that he needs it and is also celebrating the fact that he's been given it. No one, think about forgiveness, is more eager to forgive than a person who is like acutely aware of how much he has been forgiven and is also rejoicing over that forgiveness. If we are utterly convinced that we need grace and are rejoicing in our hearts and minds because we've been shown grace, we will be quick to give grace to. If we are like acutely and painstakingly aware of what we've been forgiven of and we are rejoicing over that reality, we will find great joy in forgiving others. This is an inside-out reality, right? We look outside of ourselves to save what's wrong in us, and then as God saves what's wrong in us and changes us, this happens for us. As we are given eyes to see what in the world's really going on in terms of the grace I've been shown and the forgiveness that I've been given, we are then quick, and we are even joyful to do it and show that to others. Imperfectly, yes, but we are eager to forgive and show Grace, give grace. Friends, with respect to our unwillingness to forgive, and even the parable of the unforgiving servant that we considered earlier, we're not saved by how well we apply the gospel. Praise God, that's true. Okay, So we're not saved by how, how well we apply the gospel. And at the same time, everyone in the room needs to wrestle seriously and sincerely with our unwillingness to forgive. We need to seriously and sincerely wrestle with our tendency to judge and punish other people. And certainly in the context of this series, that means your spouse. Because that individual, he or she, is going to be the one who faces this reality the most. Your unwillingness to forgive, my unwillingness to give grace. My spouse faces that more than any other person. See, when we bring that kind of law economy that we've been considering into our marriages, friends, let's just be honest, we functionally deny the gospel. When we bring that law economy into our marriages, we functionally deny the very thing that we are gathering this morning to celebrate. The thing that we gather every Sunday morning, by the way, to celebrate. We deny that functionally when we bring the law into our marriages and put it where only the gospel should be. And we're frankly not living consistently with God's word when we do that. We want, I mean, again, like real talk, right? We want grace for ourselves. We, I mean, what's wild is we think we deserve grace, which by definition is undeservable. We want gospel for us. That's clear. But then we turn around and administer law to everyone else, especially to our husband or our wife. That's what we do. God has been clear, by the way, in multiple places in his word that it doesn't work that way. That the standard you use will be used against you. Those are frightening words. Right? May it be true of all of us, friends, that we are eager to give grace and extend forgiveness. Because we've been shown so much grace by God and we are debtors to mercy. Because we've been forgiven so much in Jesus, we've been credited by righteousness. Remember that we did not accomplish what? It's true. That's cause for celebration and it's more than enough reason to forgive your spouse. It's more than enough reason to show grace to others. So a regular pattern of forgiveness is an essential component of grace-driven marriage, which brings us to our third and final point. I will try to do this as efficiently as I can. Our third point, again, no surprise here, the sermon title, Confession, Forgiveness, Compassion. So here we go with compassion. 
As we've thought about a number of times as a church, God's truth should, I'll emphasis on that word, should, produce compassion in us toward other people. Two big ways it does that. Number one, God's Word reveals to us the reality of sin as a state. God's Word reveals to us the reality of sin as a state, as a condition. And if you're thinking, brother, I've seen this movie before. I've heard this record before. I will acknowledge that you have, and I will tell you that you can't hear this enough. Because this is not your natural assumption, and this is not what's preached in most churches in this land. And I'll say that in arrogance, because we've somehow got the corner on church. It's just truth. Sin as an action is preached all the time. Sin as a state and a condition is sadly neglected. But it is what explains so much of your existence and mine. That sin and misery of every kind entered the world when Adam and Eve sinned and fell. It explains the fact that we are born, God's Word does, that we are born into a state of sin and corruption. This is why it is as natural as breathing to do wicked things. This is why things fall apart in this world. This is why the expression, well, that's just life, when something bad happens, that's why that expression exists. Because the world is broken. People are fallen. It's real. We are all sinners generally. That's true. And sin has affected each one of us in specific ways. So everybody in this room, generally a sinner, fallen in Adam, true. And that sin, that fallenness, will manifest itself in your life and mine in specific ways. What I'm talking about are the proclivities that we have. I'm talking about predispositions that we have. The bends in our respective frames that we'll often consider. The fact that there are battles that we seem to be fighting spiritually all the time. That there are patterns of sin that we're fighting every day that we didn't sign up for. Where did those come from? It comes from your fallenness and how sin is manifesting itself in your life. That's how far reaching this is. This is so much more serious than, oh, well, we just do bad stuff. This is a systemic problem. And the disease is in every one of us. And the disease has sometimes unique symptoms in each of us. Now, everything I'm saying, none of that exonerates anybody. Everybody in this room is guilty. I'm first in line. None of what I'm saying excuses sinful and ridiculous behavior. No way. But it does, however, produce compassion for fellow strugglers. At least it should. Second way that God's word, God's truth promotes compassion amongst ourselves and promotes compassion toward others is the fact that it reveals God's compassion toward us. God's Word reveals God's compassion toward us. Psalm 103, if you have your Bibles, that's awesome. If not, I think Ryan is all over it. He's going to be putting a few of those verses up on the screen for us. We've read this as a congregation already today. But just let these words kind of wash over you again. I'm actually going to begin in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever, though He would be justified in doing so. Right? He does not deal with us according to our sins, though that's what we deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities, though that's what we should get. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's a long way. So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. So far as the east is from the west, again, infinite distance, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Praise be to his name. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And then these words, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Praise God. That's true. Some of those comforted. Psalm 103.14 is an incredibly comforting verse. God is not ignorant of your frame. not ignorant of my frame. He knows exactly what he's dealing with. That's why he sent his son. God is so good to us, that's clear. I mean, all over Scripture, but in a passage like that, He shows us compassion. And keep in mind that we are sinners who really have sinned against Him and His infinite holiness. Because 
you realize that like when you're sinned against, it's bad, but your holiness is not violated because you don't have any. God is infinitely holy. And when we sin against him, that is an infinitely big deal. And yet he's compassionate. He knows our frame, that we are dust and finite and fallen. Not only are those words full of compassion, they're full of shocking mercy. So then the question for all of us is, how's it going in our relationships? How's it going in our marriages? In light of some of these realities. When your spouse, yet again, is falling into a pattern of sin that's been a problem for years. How's it going? When your spouse, for like the fifth stretch of time in as many years, finds herself in the throes of deep depression. How's that going? When those weaknesses in your spouse just keep showing up, like several days a week, it's like, oh my gosh, are we still dealing with this? How's it going? Do you have compassion on your husband or your wife? Are you charitable? Does it occur to you that nobody would want to not fall into that sin more than him? Do you realize that nobody would want to be out of the throes of depression more than her? Does it occur to you that your spouse doesn't like the weaknesses that he has and that perhaps he really is working on them? There's always an answer that you're not expecting, right? There's a reason you're not expecting. Mercy makes room for that. Compassion makes room for that. Do you lovingly pursue your spouse in the midst of sin and weakness and struggle? Or do you just immediately start firing the arrows and the darts of wrath and judgment and condemnation? Or do you just, maybe rather than in an offensive way, throwing the, the arrows and the darts or whatever, shooting the arrows of wrath, maybe you do it with the silent treatment, the distance, whatever it is, it's the same thing. Do you strive to speak the truth in a loving and compassionate way in your marriage? That's a tough one. In a church like ours, we love the truth, right? We like to speak the truth. We get fired up for the truth. The truth needs to be spoken in our marriages. That's true. And it needs to be spoken in a loving way. And I would suggest this. I'm sure many in the room, as thoughtful as you are, have thought about this. When the truth is not spoken in love, it ceases to be the truth. You thought about that. When, you, the, when the truth is not spoken in love, it ceases to be the truth in this way. Because when truth is spoken in a way that isn't loving, it is twisted and manipulated for our purposes, not God's. Right? So in that sense, I'm not saying that if you state an objective fact, that that objective fact is now false. That's not what I mean. But we're talking about the holistic truth of God. If it is spoken in a way that is unloving, it ceases to be the truth in the way that we're meaning it to be the truth. Because it is now twisted and manipulated for our own purposes, not God's. Because when we speak the truth harshly, we often have our own agenda. So friends, I want to just kind of land the plane here with just some pastoral advice. I call it that because I'm not going to chapter and verse here. I think I'm reasoning from the Bible. I love you. I'm a struggler too. And so if any of the things that I'm saying in any of these sermons is insightful, that's probably an indictment on me. So some pastoral advice. It's easier to speak the truth in love to your spouse in the face of sin and struggle when you are very aware of your own sins and struggles. It is much easier to speak the truth and love to your spouse in the face of sin and struggle when you are very aware of your own sin and struggles. So, I have patterns of sin that I struggle with, just like you do. I don't want to struggle with them, just like you don't want to struggle with yours. I have weaknesses that I don't like, that I do work on, just like you're doing. I have bins in my frame, too, that I didn't sign up for, that are hard. And why that matters is that I then need to make the connection that that, those same things, are exactly what my wife is dealing with, too. 
My wife is dealing, I'm not even talking about me, I'm talking about in her own life. Her patterns of sin, her weaknesses, her bends in her frame, just like me, she didn't sign up for many of those. Just like me, she doesn't want to struggle with those. Just like me, she doesn't like her weaknesses, right? And Michelle and I are not unique. We're not unique at all. This is true of every couple in this room. Any couple who would ever be listening to this sermon. So just like I want and need compassion from my wife, she needs it from me. And the same is true for you in your marriage. So here's an exhortation for everyone. Greet sin with compassion and kindness. Greet sin with compassion and kindness. And what I mean is greet the sin of your spouse or the sin of your brother or sister in the church or whatever with compassion and kindness. And then what's cool about this is when you do that, you actually get out of the way. When you greet your spouse's sin with compassion and kindness, you get out of the way and he or she is left with the Lord. He or she is left to deal with his or her own heart. And this is so much more powerful and effective, friends, than to greet sin with wrath and judgment and condemnation. We are kidding ourselves if we think that it will be more effective in the life of our husband or wife to greet his or her sin with wrath and judgment. So we tend to think wrongly, right? Shocker. We tend to think that, well, if I forgive him, then this is just going to keep on happening. How many times have you thought that? In a human level. If I forgive, then it's just going to keep on happening. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to get better if I just keep giving a pass. And friends, I would say that that is a denial of the gospel. It's a denial of the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is a misunderstanding of what forgiveness even means. Or we think something like this. She needs to pay. Like she needs to feel the weight of this. And so that's, I'm just going to kind of withhold forgiveness. Right? So that that weight is felt. We think wrongly that our spouse will be changed by our judgment. And that is absolutely dangerous. So when we act like that and we think like that, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. And honestly, friends, since when did striving against each other produce anything good in your marriage? I don't think it ever has. Striving against each other doesn't do it. Real hard work can happen in your spouse when we greet sin with compassion and kindness. And by doing so, you can be an instrument of God's grace in your wife's life, in your husband's life. A posture of compassion, a regular posture of compassion is an essential component of a grace-driven marriage or a grace-driven relationship. So friends, as we're concluding this time, none of this has been complicated, I trust. None of it's rocket science. We simply be considering how we live with one another in Christ. We've been considering how we live with one another as husband and wife in the gospel. So what we've been doing is essentially an exercise in bridging what might be called the functional gap that can exist between our gospel and then the culture of our relationships. In Christ we have been ransomed, restored, redeemed, and forgiven. We've been shown extravagant grace and mercy and compassion. It's, as we've considered, objectively good to confess our sin. It's objectively good to forgive others when they sin against us. And it is objectively good to show compassion. And so the prayer is that we would all do that in the power of God's Spirit. So let's go to Him in prayer now and ask Him for His help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you now and we ask for just that. We ask for you to help us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do the great heart work that only you can do, that you have promised to do in the lives of every one of your children. We pray that you would be working in us greater gratitude and joy and appreciation for the forgiveness and the grace that you have shown us. And we pray, God, that that would result in greater joy and eagerness on our parts to forgive and to show grace ourselves.
Lord, we don't want to be inconsistent in the way that we live. We want to live in step with Your Word, in step with Your Gospel, in step with Your Holy Spirit. So we pray that You would make that happen increasingly in the lives of all of these dear ones in this room. Father, we pray now that You would be with us and minister to us as we partake of the Lord's table. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.